Hey, how are you feeling? Hi, Dan. You sound okay. You sound all right. I'm okay. I'm all right. What's going on? I'm okay. I'm all right. Yeah. Yeah. What else is there to say about it? I don't know. You had a little thing. I'm just checking in and on on, uh, on you. Make sure you're all right. Yeah, uh, I have uh, I have colds periodically. There uh, sucks. I brought you some sucks. soup. Oh, is it homemade soup? Yeah, yeah. Made it with some matzo balls for you. Hmm. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That's sweet. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. I, I love a little matzo soup. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's it. um, it's um, it's got health in it. <laughs> That's right. That's all it has. So, what's going on? What are you doing? Just laying low, just to recovering, taking taking your time to recover and get better. You don't need to rush it. No, no, I'm not a rusher. Although I have a I have an event tonight where I have to play a song. I haven't rehearsed the song. That's usually what. Usually what happens, this was one of those where a week and a half ago, I was like, don't be, don't be that guy that you always are uh, where you don't rehearse the song until the last minute. But here I am, uh, here I am having done it again. So after, after our show, I, I think I have to mow the lawn first and then I have to, oh, uh, and then I have to learn a song and then I have to go do an event. So how does that work when you say to learn a song? I mean, it. I'm sure that there that you remember it to some degree, right? But you've got to you've got to like figure out the arrangement. You've got to figure out what you're feeling like this year compared to the last time that you played it or wrote it, right? That, that's all got to be in the mix there, right? Um, I mean, there's a huge difference between a song like um, uh, "Are You Gonna Be My Girl." Yeah, by whatever that Australian band is, where it has one riff basically, and it has one lyric. <clears throat> I could I could learn that song here during the middle of our show, right? Um, but the song I'm learning is by a band called Frightened Rabbit, and it has a lot of lyrics which are not storytelling lyrics. They're they're like my lyrics. They're impressionistic lyrics. Ah, and it's written over. A pretty simple chord progression, but one that is obtuse, uh, by which I mean it doesn't have very many chords, but the chords turn around on each other um, in uh, non-obvious ways, which is, again, a a thing that's similar to the way I write songs, non-obvious chord arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the melody, the vocal melody, is not like super hooky Mm. the vocals kind of they they tease around and they sometimes he does this sometimes he does that there's not a there's not a ton of like are you gonna be my girl which he sings like 15 times in that song (laughs) you know it's just like he just kind of when he wins his way through this five minute long song where he's got a he's on a path you know but but to learn it, particularly in an afternoon, is like a huge undertaking because there's there uh, all the things that you would grab onto and say like, oh, okay, we're coming back around to this and I already know how to do that, so I'll just do it again. Um, it doesn't have any of that. Sure. So it's just like... You basically have to memorize five straight minutes of something different every second. <sighs> That's going to be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But 
it's my reputation to be totally unprepared. So, but I don't think people think that about you as far as you know, as far as I know. Yeah. (laughs) Do they, uh, I think that I think over time, um, there are enough people in the entertainment business who have asked me to do a thing. And then I've arrived without a guitar and without knowing the songs and but you said who was it that, was it Amy Mann that you performed with who was channeling the song to you even though you yeah. had become you had showed up unprepared she channeled it to you and it was a spiritual experience hmm this I'm is what you sure. you said that i'm not uh, i'm not sure but uh, but this she, is something she, you know hold on this is something you said to me and it, it was profound and it left a left an impression amy and i have a have a an on stage connection that i'm i'm not sure 100% whether it's unique or whether or unique between us or whether amy just has developed this over the course of her career and she she blesses people with it but when amy uh, but i've watched her perform with other people and i i um I don't see her do it necessarily with everybody, but when we're playing together, she uh, and I look at each other mm. while we're singing. Mm-hmm. And I think it is to do sometimes with the fact that we haven't rehearsed very much and she's very good at watching and, you know, we're not signaling to each other like, okay, here it comes or anything like that. You know, we're just watching each other and so we're able to uh, we're able to be in sync with one another because if you're watching somebody, you just see the music come out of them and you're, you put your music out of you at the same time. So much easier than if you're not watching somebody. Yes. Um, so yeah, she, she's, she's very, um, she's very good at being on stage with, you know, like being on stage with Amy is extremely comfortable. Not, but this is today is not a day where I can do that because nobody's going to be on stage with me. I'm just going to be standing up, and I think it's going to be broadcast live on the radio. And it is a memorial service for the singer, so I can't just. Well, you've got to, you've got to slap a dash. Yeah, you've got to know what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. Amy Mann uh, <laughs> lost her toe in the Big Lebowski. She did. She did. Famously, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, well, you know, it's cool when um, it's cool when people get to do nice things. Mm-hmm. Don't you? Don't you agree? <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing has ever been said that is more true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on with you, Dan? Has uh, anything big happened in uh, in uh, the Benjamin uh, uh, multiverse? Not really. You know, things are things are okay. I don't really. You know, things things change and then they come back to the way they were and sometimes they don't. Huh? So. Mm. Wow, well, that's fascinating fodder. <laughs> I know. For an award-winning podcast. I know. It's just rela- it's a relaxed day, you know. It's, a, it's been, it's been kind of rainy here. And I think uh, ACL coming up, which have you ever played ACL or attended? I have, yeah. The... Uh Let's see. Have I played two ACLs? I think I've only played one, and it was 102 degrees, Ugh. 
and um, what year about was that dust dusty it would have been 2006 or 2007 yeah that was the dust those the dust years yeah the dust years yeah very very hot i think that i um well, I know what it was because my played, uh, my producer Heidi is going crazy because she's pantomiming to me that she was there that year. Oh, yay, Heidi! <laughs> she uh, takes the headphones and she sits them on her desk so that they work like little speakers, and she listens uh, just to this show. None of the other ones, just this one. Well, I'm sorry that I didn't meet Hattie at that show. Yeah, um, but I I uh, we played uh, we played on some stage and it was so hot on the stage uh, and I became, I think super dehydrated because later that day or that, that evening um, we played the opening the first, first night or the first weekend of I think first night of uh, Mohawk, the club, the Mohawk. Oh, sure. That they had a, they had an opening weekend where they had two, two shows. One of them was the long winners and one was Ghostland observatory and halfway through our show at Mohawk, I got an incredible headache, like a splitting headache where I couldn't, I couldn't open my eyes. Oh, uh, terrible. Style headache. But I had like an hour more of show to play. Right. And so I just sang through this splitting headache. <sighs> um, it's the first time that had ever happened or the only time that had ever happened. I don't really usually get headaches. But just like the entire show, I was just like, oh, just everything I did. And then, of course, you know, singing doesn't help a headache. No, God, I can imagine. Uh, so it was that was an intense that was an intense day for me. Also, there was a film crew make trying to make a documentary about the long winters at the time. But they were. Uh, they were a film crew that that contacted me with the idea like we'd like to make a documentary about the long winters and we're going to follow you around and you know and get all this footage and I was like that's fine but they took a a very aggressive approach to what being a film crew a documentary film crew is like oh, they yeah. were they were just like crowding people out of the way they were backstage with their cameras and and you know it's ACL right there hundred bands there and everybody's a rock star and everybody is um, all the people there have worked on a thousand shows and so you know for us to be up there and all of a sudden there's this crazy film crew like uh, where the camera I'm walking and the camera is in front of me backing up and there's oh, somebody yeah. behind that and then there's somebody you know spooling the cable and there's somebody you know and then everything put lights and I was just like what are you guys doing like this is not <laughs> a documentary approach to this it's like you're it's like you're making a movie or like I mean Richard Attenborough isn't here we're not this is it just felt really crazy and so the entire day at ACL they were trying to follow me around after our show and like get all this footage of me interacting with the drive-by truckers or, you know, just hanging out. And very quickly I just was, I, I got super tired of it. And so at one point I got into a golf cart with some runner and I was like, drive as fast as you can. And so they took off across the field <laughs> and the film crew jumped in a, in a uh, like commandeered a golf cart 
and they're chasing us across the across the grounds. And you know, there are people milling around all over the place. Big hot dust storm day. And I was just, I kept telling the the runner like, turn left, okay, go but go between these you know, these huts, you know, go over there. And we finally ditched them. And they were, you know, they were like, full, it was a full on car chase. Uh, and and I don't remember like I never never saw any of that footage or ever heard from them again. It just was <laughs> that's strange. It was one of these like, well, that didn't work out, man. I don't want to be I don't want to be the subject of a movie where where like it's super embarrassing to be um to to be the subject of that movie. I mean, you're right if I it just it felt like it felt like I had committed a crime and this was some in, like investigative <laughs> news team or something. <laughs> right. A Netflix documentary. Yeah, right. Before that was a thing. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. See? See what? I'm right to worry about you. No, you are not. You are not right to worry about me. It is a it is a common cold, a normal a normal cold. No worrying is necessary. All right. We would like to say thank you very much to Beachbody on demand. This is an easy to use streaming service that gives you instant access to a wide variety of super effective workouts you can do from the comfort of your own living room 24 7 this is the thing i have used some of these myself and because i'm always looking to mix things up a little bit those of you who've listened to this show know that uh that i go to the gym two three times a week and that i row a lot but you know what you can only do so much of that you want sometimes you feel like you know what i'm not seeing results from the workouts that i've been doing other times you say i just want some variety Maybe you don't work out at all. Maybe you don't go to the gym. You don't do any kind of physical activity and you want to, and you say to yourself, oh, but you know, a gym membership is expensive and then I'd have to drive there and I would lose all that time. Where am I going to shower? Cause the gym is like really gross. And yeah, da, 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 da. excuses, excuses, excuses. There are no excuses with beach body on demand because you can do this anywhere. You can use your, uh, your computer, your web-enabled TV, your tablet, your smartphone, your Roku, your Apple TV, your Chromecast, you name it. There's an app for it. There's a way to get to it. You can do this in, in your house. You can do it in your hotel. You can do it at work. And there are all kinds of different programs. The, the awesome one, I mean, they're all awesome, but P90X, like check that out if you want to completely transform yourself. That might be too intense for you. No big deal. Like they've got yoga. They've got stuff to make you have stronger abs or a stronger lower back. Like, you name it, there is a program in there for you. The best trainers that are super motivating and super cool, the best programs, they've got hundreds of effective workouts for all fitness levels from bodybuilding to weight training to cardio to HIT to yoga. They even have dance workouts. They have workouts you can do with your kids. It's awesome. And you do it all on your schedule. Workouts are as short as 10 minutes and they don't require any extra equipment. In the time it takes you to drive and park at the gym, you could be done working out. How about that? It's the best deal in fitness. And listeners of Roadwork can try it absolutely free. Isn't, isn't that cool? So you can be like me and get into like awesome shape watching your television. How cool is that? And you know what? I challenge all of you to get started. You've been sitting around enough. Go check this out. Here's what you do. And it's a little different. It's not go to a website and use a promo code. No. Here's what you must do. 
you must text the word roadwork, one word, roadwork, to 303030. That's 303030. Text roadwork to 303030, and you will get a special free trial membership that includes their new 14-day results plan where you can lose up to nine pounds in the first two weeks. What? That's real. Go check it out. Text the word roadwork to 303030, and we appreciate the support of Beachbody On Demand. That early in the show, you do the first spot, huh? Every, every 15 or 20 minutes. Oh, nice, nice. So right now you're just convalescing and uh, relaxing and recovering until you get to get up and do this song. So how are you going to fit in the rehearsal time? Well, that's the, that's the problem. How many yeah. hours do you have between now and then? Hmm. Well, it's 11.20 now. Yeah. And the, I think the show starts at 6.30. <laughs> oh, so you've got at least till this evening. Yeah. Why yeah, not yeah. just well, do a song you know really well? Well, I don't really know anyone else's songs very do well. Do one of your own songs. Well, that's not really in the spirit of the event. Oh. My kids still like like your songs a lot. I'll play it, play them on the weekends when we're driving around. And like, do you really know him? Yeah. He's well, good. He's have, good. Kids have good taste. They yeah. do. They're smart kids being raised very well uh-huh. by <laughs> sensitive parents who <laughs> yeah. are teaching them about about quality music. Right. I mean, I support the whole, I support the whole endeavor. Well, one of the things that, uh, see, there's so many things that I feel like we should save for the, the, uh, Patreon show for the supporter only show. Well, you, you should probably say, um, at some point I was thinking about this, you know, a lot of the, uh, people that are listening to the program that are not, uh, have not elected to, uh, go to the Patreon show, they don't really know what's happening over there. They don't know what they're missing. We haven't really teased them right. with any of that content beyond saying like, oh, we're it's doing good. this other. Right. It's really good. You should go listen. Other thing over here. And in general, you know, uh, typically as a listener of things, if I, if, I, if I was a listener of things, I would, um, I would feel like, meh, you know, why would I, I get plenty of, Ah, I get an hour a week from from them. Why do I need another hour a week of really insightful, revealing, personal, awesome stuff? I mean, who wants who wants that? But definitely, I would say that that uh, the idea of having the the restriction, you know, I I know it's somewhat self serving to say like, oh, the restriction of having to pay for a thing uh, weeds out the. Uh, the looky lose. I guess that's. I guess it's. It's true. It actually feels that way, though. Yeah. You know, like like when you're talking on a show like this. Definitely, you know, I, I uh, in the early podcasting days, Merlin and I were pretty unguarded mm. and said some things. A couple of which um, got sort of perverted during my election campaign. Really, and put out put up on people's Facebook pages. They didn't gain any traction with the larger world, but there, you know, there were a couple of people on Facebook who made it their special mission to be against my candidacy and stupid and quoted, you know, not just quoted, but, but took excerpts from Roderick on the line. No, out of context and certainly out of the context of the whole show. 
And when we were doing that show, we assumed that everyone listening had listened to every single episode and knew exactly what were what what, what was in Merlin's heart and in my heart. Sure. Uh, but every once in a while, people would come, you know, come in. Well, I guess it happens all the time, right? Somebody says, I'm going to listen to that show. And they put on an episode and they have no context for it. Um, and they listen to 30 minutes of a thing. And they're like, this is the, you know, this is awful. Because Merlin expresses an opinion, or I do, that within the context of the show. Makes sense, is, right? But outside of it, it, it's garbage. Yeah, well, or it sounds, it just sounds shocking. And and, and so, so I felt at that point, I, I mean, I felt betrayed by that, uh, that during my campaign because I knew that it had come from someone. Ultimately, it had come from people that actually were were members of the community and had listened to the show and understood the stuff, knew where to find it, but but also knew that it was the type of thing you could pervert for for politics. Right. <clears throat> but when you and I started doing the After Dark thing, we didn't discuss what it would be just that we were going to respond to viewer mail, but our viewers tend to send us really, um, uh, uh, tend to send us questions that, uh, that engage bigger, bigger issues, right? Drugs and suicide sure. and, and relationships. And it's all exactly the type of stuff that I feel somewhat inhibited about talking super candidly about on a podcast that's just broadcasting on an open stream. Yeah. Because of the, the potential that somebody goes, Oh, you got to hear what this guy says about suicide. And then 50 people from the suicide committee who have never listened to our show before, but have very, very strong feelings about how other people talk about suicide. Sure all listen to a 10 minute long excerpt and then I become the poster child of you know, the latest flame war from a special interest. But on the other side of this thing, it's like, Oh, if you want to hear this stuff, then you contribute the, the, the whole premise is that anybody that's over there, it does not, is not there with like bad is not there for for bad reasons or you know nobody from the suicide league is going to pay five dollars a month to go over there and uh, they probably aren't right they're not going to sign up to donate just to go listen to 10 minutes of a thing to get mad about but we've we've covered a lot of stuff over there and then this last week when when someone said you know hi i'm a millennium and i don't want to have a lot of my friends don't want to have kids and I don't want to have kids. What do you think about that? Yeah. And you and I spoke pretty frankly about it. And you know, we got a letter this week from somebody who or or two, two yeah. very short letters yes. <laughs> from somebody who was really, uh, really offended and defensive about it. Yeah. And you know, it's part, it's part of the, the problem of talking more, um, more directly about things. I, I I think it is that we now culturally are very, very reluctant to be directly to, to directly advance a point of view that is critical of an, of an opposing point of view that isn't that, that that's about things that are, uh, 
that in other contexts are used as political footballs. You know, like you tip, we do so much tiptoeing now. It's like, well, I don't want to talk about Pokemons because I know they're really popular with people. I think they're a little dangerous, but I'd better couch that in (laughs) a bunch of different ameliorating, mitigating language here because I sure don't want a bunch of Pokemon, Pokemon fans um, descending on me about the way I pronounce the word Pokemon. Right. At least that's true, like in in our in our narrow sliver. But yeah, we were talking about talking about whether or not you know we're talking about the the decision to have kids as a as a thing that never existed before, right? And whether or not that decision, whether or not the ability to decide, although we think of it as like in some ways the prime example of of like modern freedom and choice and it's you know it's a, a, a maybe the example of how we have been liberated from biology and liberated from religion now you can choose to have a kid but in fact throughout all of human history it was having a kid was almost always an accident you know it was by design completely a random you could have sex 50 times and not have a kid or you could have sex the first time you ever had sex and have a kid it was mm-hmm. just like Roll the dice every time you do it. Um, and that that is in some ways intrinsic to having a kid, the randomness of it. And, um, and introducing choice into it that is somewhat reliable has created a weird, it's created a weird relationship to parenting, to, to like whatever the idea of like mutual culture is that we all share. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that feels very political, although it, it feels political to say, although it's not, it's, it's a, it's an observation. It's a biological observation. Um, but it's such a political topic that anyway, the, the person that wrote us felt very, felt very much. I think that we were just from the tone, like the, that we were saying, saying things that hurt it, that hurt them about whether or not. Um, choosing to have a kid or not to have a kid like that you could make it that you could make any kind of judgment other than to say as we've all been taught to say it's your choice it's a person's choice and there's no uh, no one else can make any kind of comment on that whatsoever like to choose to have a kid or not to have a kid is the primary source of our personal agency and there's no room in that conversation for anyone to say a fucking word because you're right over, you know, immediately you're trotting on this ground. That's like abortion rights grounds or religious spiritual grounds or feminist grounds or everybody's claimed that space and every inch of it. And so you don't just like lackadaisically wander in there and start talking about it. But of course you have to, you have to, you have to still be able to talk about everything you can't in this in this world that we're in now let factions claim all the ground so that you you see so you can't have conversations about things unless you are standing firmly on one side of a debate or unless you've chosen your side and now you're ready to fight for it like that is a that kind of 
like hyper partisanship about mm-hmm. every single thing is it's super boring and super um, uh, counterproductive and anti-intellectual and spirit killing. But it's you have to be really, really. Uh, I don't. The problem is. On one hand, it feels like you have to be super confident to wade into those spaces and not stake out a position, but just wander around. You have to be confident to do that. But it's precisely that you do not feel confident that that would um, that would make you want to wander around in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, it it should be a place for people to not have to be brave. But right. to be able to say like, well, what if this, or have you ever considered this angle? And, um, and so again, it really inhibits our ability as, as, um, as just people in the world and people trying to build a better world and the, po- and political factions are happy to carve out, um, those battlefields and happy to exclude people from those conversations, happy to politicize everything. You know, we have a city council person here in Seattle named Shama Sawant, who is, uh, who is a member of the socialist party. And I think the most, for a long time, she was the most prominent elected official in the country that was, um, an avowed member of this socialist. Mm -hmm. And she did great work. Uh, when she was first elected at radicalizing the Seattle city council and kind of giving voice to, um, to the, the frustrated leftist, um, 15% of the Seattle electorate and people really threw behind her. I did, um, everybody I know did because she just, she really shook things up and it was exciting. And she was the one that passed the first $15 an hour minimum wage Um, but subsequent to that, she stopped being a very effective legislator because she just, I think like a lot of, uh, politically radical people, she just set herself against everything, against the status quo in every way, not really proposing any legislation that was, um, that she was going to get passed, but everything she did was symbolic. And she became a symbolic figurehead for a for a movement here. She's still very popular with her um, her most engaged supporters, uh, and it doesn't seem like she's at risk of of losing her seat on the council. But the majority, I think, of people in the city who supported her initially started to feel like, oh. Like, like I think most pronouncedly, she alienated the the unions, and we're all old school liberals here. And Seattle is like a union town, and was from the very beginning. Uh, Longshoremen's union, carpenters' union, teamsters—big, big parts of what have made Seattle a democratic city. Mm-hmm. And you can't, in the old liberal model, you cannot have leftism without union engagement. That's Mm -hmm. part of the coalition. Okay. Right. You can't govern 
you can't have a put a leftist government in power where it doesn't make common cause with other people, right? You I mean that's in Europe you see that you'll you'll have parliaments where they put together oh there's some greens got elected and some socialists got elected and some mainstream christian democrats got elected and and all those groups kind of nobody has a majority so they all have to make these deals with each other like okay well we'll put together a, a voting block that will give us a majority in this case and that's how it has to work in in american politics too you put these coalitions together and you're like we have enough people now and the unions are a major part of that well Shama alienated the unions because they're not, because the unions nowadays tend to be a little bit more conservative. Those are working people and they have different, they no longer are allied with the international workers of the world. You know, they're much more sort of your average um, middle-class Americans with, with those values. And Shama's a revolutionary and she's just like, we're going to fight development. And the unions are like, wait a minute, the development is exactly who employs union workers. Right. She's like, development is 100% evil. And they're like, but this is where, this is where steel workers have jobs. She's like, I am not listening to you. And so, <laughs> so she can be, she's very effective on Capitol Hill where her, um, where her constituency is a hundred percent like middle-class service industry people or software people or people that work in the arts or in clubs, you know, there's nobody on Capitol Hill that works with sheet metal, you know, right. Or, or with a hammer. But, but she's like, she basically blew the, the, the minds of the left around here, the traditional left who are like, how do you claim to be a socialist and you don't, want to work with the unions like it just it's just like (laughs) but what shama is great at is when you introduce a topic into any discussion when you show up at the city council with with anything with any kind of movement or concern if she sees that you have people behind you she can she can choose to be on your side and then very, very like, it's not subtle at all. It's, it's, it's very aggressive, but what she'll do is she will co-opt you into her sphere, right? She Mm -hmm. sees the world divided with these very hard lines. Like here's the left, here's the right, here is the truth, here's the lie. And so we have this, um, we have this club in Seattle that's at risk right now. Some, some developers bought the property and they've proposed to build a 30 story high rise on the site of this legendary rock club. All right. Not, not something I can tell that you're a big fan of. Well, you know, the show box is, is like ground zero for me, my band, my culture, all, yeah. all the people who work there are my friends and have always been my friends I've seen every band in the world there. I saw Prince play there. I saw Paul Simon play there. Oh, wow. Soundgarden, you know, like, but also I've played there uh, dozens of times in various capacities, not just as the long winters, but in the Western State Hurricanes, but also I've gotten up and played shows with 
with almost all of my friends. I've done comedy shows there, political rallies, like it's home base. And the developers don't care. They're, they bought this property from somebody who sold them the property. And they and the thing is, it's right across the street from Pike Place Market. It's the perfect place to put a 30-story condo building from a capitalist standpoint and probably from, a urban, from an urbanist standpoint. And from a lot of standpoints in terms of changing times. But we don't, we don't care about all that all those arguments. We don't want to lose our place, you know, our clubhouse. Even though a lot of the people that, and the thing is that Ella Fitzgerald played that, right? It's not just that this was some punk rock bar that, that we, um, that we built that we don't want to lose. Like this is the, this was one of the small clubs at the heart of the city and to lose it would be to make Seattle a, a shallower place. Sure. But none of those arguments are especially convincing to the world of people that build buildings, that levy taxes, that that talk about professional sports teams, that talk about tourism. You know, like all of our concerns about losing this club have to do with the spirit of a city, the life of the cultural life of a city. They're not particularly um, – the, the, those aren't like convincing arguments to people who have never been to that club for all intent, you know, like that club, that club can hold 1300 people. So in a way it's a, it's an exclusive place. It doesn't serve the larger population of the city, maybe any more than a big expensive condo building does. You know, it's, it's like a, it's in, it's, it's a, it's a cultural space, but for a, a very small group of people. Well, because it's our place, it's one of those things that politically activated a bunch of musicians in the town. People who normally, you know, sit back and go like, uh, politics is all bullshit, man. <laughs> you know, uh, all the candidates are the same. You vote for any of them or none of them. It doesn't even matter. That whole crowd, our, our rock and roll crowd. Right when they get a thing like this, where they're like, oh, fuck, you can't take away the show box. That's bullshit. All of a sudden, you know, there are these shows and rallies and t-shirts like save our show box. <laughs> I don't mean to, I don't mean to mock it. Right. Because these are, these are my people. Yeah. <clears throat> but they're not in, they're not political typically. And they don't know how political things work. They haven't given any thought to like, what happens when cities grow and and billions of dollars are at stake and all the developers are scrambling for real estate and in a, and in a city like Seattle there are, the city council in particular here which is very activist they're constantly trying to channel development force it to do things limit it here and allow it there under all these rules and the city council has, over the last 50 years, done an incredibly shitty job of actually accomplishing their goals. You know, they'll put height limits on things and uh, in order to create a livable neighborhood. And then what height limits do is that they just push development, they just spread it out. 
Well, then the people that are the, in the surrounding neighborhoods that don't want development encroaching, they say, "What the? we don't want all that here. Why didn't you make the height limits higher so that we could concentrate it around core areas? And so they're like, well, but if we may, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let the height limits go up, but we'll charge developers a tax or a fee or we'll make them put 20% of that housing at at uh, subsidized rates, you know, and then the developers are like, well, no thanks. And they go, oh, okay, well, now we'll let it, but, you know, they're just, they're always playing catch up. They're always reactionary. They're never thinking about how development of the city could be part of a holistic plan. It's always some rule that's supposed to punish rich people and, and it never <laughs> excuse me hmm. and it never works because rich people aren't dumb you know they're not just going to you don't just impose some socialist rule on them and they go oh okay geez, sorry you know we're 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 happy to pay our share we just never we just never knew you know rich people are like oh well i'm just going to have my lawyer like draw up a document that has a workaround because you didn't think of everything and we're going to go ahead with our plan anyway. Go, go screw yourselves. You know, like, like that, that's the constant battle between progressive politicians and, and, um, and aggressive capitalism. But anyway, there was a big rally at the Seattle city council and all of my rock and roll people went down to the city council. Most of them had never been into city hall. And they file into the city council room and it's all the leather jackets and all the, all the asymmetrical haircuts and the, and the dirty eyeliner. And there are a bunch of rock stars there and they get up and, and Ben Gibbard is sort of leading the charge and they get up and they say, we, you know, we want to save our show box. We want it zoned a historic building. Um, we want you know, we want it to be protected. Here's why it's part of the cultural life of the city. It's important to us. And, you know, most of the people on the city council are like, mm-hmm, great. Okay. Well, thanks for coming in. You know, it's great to see all these cool, these cool jackets and stuff it's better <laughs> than, a, you know, our normal day is pretty boring. Right. But they're politicians, right? So they love that there are so many people there, that there are famous people there. They love that attention. And Shama decided that this was her cause too because it's against developers. It's against big money capitalism. Mm-hmm. Now for the most part, the rock people don't don't care about that. They're generally against big money people uh, wherever they're from. Um, and you know, and they like to bemoan change. but but Shama, you know, kind of like, wades into this rock group and goes and starts to get chants going, you know, that are like, save our show box. Um, and the, and the rock people are like, yeah, we're in politics now. Like save our show box. <laughs> and, and, and then Shama's like democratic socialism now. And the rock people are like democratic socialism now. What? <laughs> like what? And she just immediately, and with a with a true political gift, immediately turned the rally into her rally. Nice. And had all of these Save Our Showbox people in there. You know, she's like raising her fist and saying, power to the workers. 
And the rock people are like, power to the workers. And they're saying it with enthusiasm, but they have no idea. Like that has nothing to do with the show box or saving the show box or any of their, any of the things that they care about. And they're chanting now. She's got all these like cool, beautiful rock people chanting her um, socialist political slogans. And at the end of the event, what happened was she had gathered all of the energy to herself and had turned the entire thing into a thing that that elevated her and her profile and her platform on the city council. And she, honestly, I swear to God, she, she's never been in the show box. She doesn't give two good goddamns <laughs> about rock and roll or anything to do with it. <laughs> she just wants – politically, it is advantageous to her to oppose every single um, – development in the city that is not a that is not explicitly low income housing and the rock so i heard from a lot of the rock people like what was that all about like how did i why was i shouting workers of the world unite <laughs> right what did that mean what was i, I was just like, doing <laughs> yeah i was like well you know like welcome to politics yeah uh, but she did a wonderful job of taking that space which was political, but was, but, but was a confused space where people were saying, I don't, <coughs> I don't have, I don't know anything about city politics or land use or, or capitalism. I just want to save my personal place. And Shama said, great, then that makes you a democratic socialist. You know, she, she knew where her borders were and felt like she had just collected 2000 new voters or something. And it's, it's that type of thing that makes it very nowadays. And this has always been true of politics, but it's really true now um, that there's just nowhere for people to kind of throw ideas around without other people going, I cannot believe you just said that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I didn't, I didn't advocate for it. I just said it. Or I just, I didn't even say what you're saying. I said, I said, uh, I said an adjacent thing. <coughs> anyway, it surprised me so much how, how, uh, how much our behind the Patreon wall place feels just a little bit safer mm -hmm. as a place to go to, you know, to bounce around. Um, and the response from people has been, has been really positive except for this latest incident in, incidents where we talked about the choice of having children and what that really entails. And I mean, then the original question was, what do you think about that? Like, um, and so I, so you and I both talked about it from a personal standpoint, right? right? Rather than like policy or what sure. we think the law should be, right? right? Just, we're just talking about it personally, but, but again, that is, that's very fraught, but we got a letter. I mean, I feel like we should kind of have this episode maybe be a little bit of a, a peek behind that Patreon curtain all the way across, including we had a, we had a, a letter that asked you specifically what your politics were mm -hmm. because they said they listened to your shows, a lot of your shows, all of your shows and most of your co-hosts and most of the people in your well, what, why don't you find the letter and read it? I am doing. I am doing that right now. 
So this is what the type of thing, and maybe the fact that this is not on the backside of the paywall will inhibit you a little bit from speaking completely. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll hold back. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I'll, I'll keep things uh, secret. Well, let's find out. I mean, maybe you would have kept them secret even behind the paywall, but let's see. I I I keep saying paywall, but I mean, Patreon. I know what you're talking about, but I mean, that's a gentler way of saying it, but I don't, I I don't like to BS people. No. Who wants to do that? We don't have time in this life to do that. <clears throat> we're, we are trying to earn money there, but it's also like, it's difficult to, I think most people who have Patreons um, feel really pressured to provide additional content in the form of, I don't know what, honestly, but you know, like at this level you get a pin, at that level you get a foot massage, at the next level, <laughs> you know, I'll come like dye your hair. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it's really hard to, on a podcast like this that's unscripted, that we, the where we're very personal already, to provide an additional thing, an additional value that people would be willing to pay for. But you know, it's not, it's not just that you're paying for that. It's also, in a way, just like crowdfunding our whole show. Like you wouldn't have to have that. We could have just, well, in fact, we did, right? We put up a Patreon just for our show for a while. Yeah, and people people helped, but a lot more people are coming on board and helping now because they're, they it's feel like they're getting dark. something extra. We would like to say thank you so much to Brooklinen. These guys make amazing sheets. It is true. I just slept on them last night. I am, I'm really weird about sheets. I love to, I love clean sheets i change my sheet i don't want to admit how much i change the sheets that i have so i'm not going to i will tell you i change my sheets more than any one person should and my brooklyn and sheets have been washed a lot and for me that's the test of good sheets what are they like after you wash them what are they like after you wash them like 10 times and these are great they hold up they're high quality they were the company was founded in 2014 by husband and wife and there they had this they went on some uh trips and they they realized you know what we're staying in these expensive hotels where they have these amazing these five-star hotels have these amazing luxury sheets why can't we have them in our house without paying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these things it shouldn't be like that so they said we're going to change it we're going to put the best sheets in the hands of everybody. And how do they do it? Same way that the best companies always do it. You cut out the middleman. So now you're ordering direct from the place that's, that's producing these things. And yeah, it's a little old fashioned uh, to do it that way, but guess what? It really works. They have amazing sheets. You're going to love them. They're super comfortable, super high quality, and you can get them at very, very reasonable prices. Here's what you need to do. You need to go to Brook linen.com b-r-o-o-k linen l-a-n-e-n brooklinen.com you go there and you'll get twenty dollars off and free shipping when you use the promo code roadwork they're so sure that you're going to love these sheets they offer a risk-free 60 night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters oh did i mention they have more than just sheets they got comforters they got tons of stuff you can mix and match there is so much and you're gonna have fun Picking these things out because I've got so many great choices for you. And the only way you're going to get that 20 bucks off is by going to brooklinen.com and use the promo code roadwork. 20 bucks off, 
free shipping. Go check them out. Brooklinen, best sheets ever. But it really, I really do feel strongly that it's that it's extra content. Anyway, why don't you read the letter and then we'll um, and then we'll see if you can if you can answer this question candidly okay. in front of everyone. Well, and obviously, I, everybody we know listening to the show is already a good friend. There yes, no, of course. There are no looky loos here. No, but. no. Uh, so the the author of the email, <coughs> his name is Dan. <coughs> oh, take is a this little. A plant? No, it's not a plane. Take a little, you know, um, a eucalyptus or something. Mm-hmm. So he, his name is Dan. And he says, I can use his name in the show. He says, Dan right. and John. I wonder if you guys might be willing to discuss something that I have felt is an elephant in the room frequently oh, yeah. on the many shows I listen to that Dan is on. Also would like to, to hear John's take. I think it is fair to say that most podcast personalities in the circle of shows that are in this orbit, i.e. Merlin, Syracuse, Marco, the Relay folks, Do By Friday, all the great shows, are unabashedly liberal in their political views. However, from the many hours I've listened to of road work and back to work, it seems like Dan may not agree with this. When some liberal ideas are discussed, often at length, As a listener, it seems like there is palpable silence from Dan, and on the very few occasions that this subject has come up, Dan has perhaps subtly intimated that he does not agree with liberal philosophy. I don't find this scandalous. I find it genuinely interesting, because it seems like the default today in this climate from the type of people who are podcasters. (coughs) Dan, would you be willing to address this topic and outline your beliefs and your opinions on political and social issues that may may not be in agreement with most people in this group? And if I'm not off base here to discuss what it's like to work in an orbit where everyone around you is unabashedly liberal and to be otherwise can sometimes feel like you could be sneered at. I can't really put a finger on why, but this has just really fascinated me over the history of listening to all the great shows. And I think it would be really a really fascinating subject to hear you both expound upon. If I'm off base here, then I'd also be interested to hear you talk about it anyways, the fact that people may think this is uh, may think this about you. And let me assure you, this comes from a real place of curiosity. I'm not trying to do a gotcha or anything. I listen to you guys on various shows probably more than half my waking hours and respect you both immensely. Just think it would be nice to hear Dan talk about this personal his personal beliefs for a change. Signed, Dan from New York. So that is... Dan from New York. Dan from New York. I think that's a really good question, Dan. I love this question. It's an insightful one. It comes from someone that's clearly a a listener to to your whole uh, orbit, as, as he says, and he's perceiving something. Yeah, and, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think he's, um, I think he's right in that I am not unabashedly anything when it comes to uh, my political stance on things. Generally, as a rule, I do not talk about politics. I have my own thoughts and my own opinions and my own philosophies. They do not align with any particular party. And I find that on many issues, social issues, for example, um, very liberal, uh, and yet I still have some other viewpoints that would fall into conservative and a lot that I think are in between. And I've never taken one of those tests that like tells you what you are if you're not sure. 
I know that I don't feel that there is a, any, I am registered as independent. I never talk about who I voted for. My wife doesn't even know who I voted for in any election ever. I'm the only one that knows. I've never talked about it. That's how serious I know. My wife and I would talk about anything, everything, but that's one thing I just don't talk about. And, uh, you know, so does that lead to suspicion? Well, he, he must be a Trump supporter then. Well, I'm, I'm not, but I'm also not unabashedly liberal. And I, I, I'm not sure exactly where I would fall. I, I don't know if the best way f- to do it is to have you ask me what my stance is on different issues. But uh, the closest political party that I've ever found to where I would fit would be libertarian. Um, but I'm not, there's, there's it. I don't know how that would work in the real world. I don't know if we could have that, uh, that work as a libertarian president, for example. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that particular philosophy translates well to the real world. It translates well if every single person cares about the world and pays attention to personal liberty and respects other people, then I think libertarianism would be great. But the reality is a lot of people don't. And, and so I don't know. I mean, we've never really seen that happen. So to say, Oh, I'm libertarian. that's kind of like saying, well, you're, you're not really anything because you can't, we, we have yet to see it, how that really works in practice. Maybe. But anyway, uh, so I don't really know how to answer the question um, other than to have you bring up issues and, and, and me share my stance on them. Do you, do, you it, think of, do you think of yourself as a political person? No. When things happen in the world, do you think of them with a political take? Never. <coughs> I do pay attention to politics because especially – now that I'm not, you know, 18 anymore, I realize that l- politics, especially local politics, can have a dramatic effect on things that I care about in my town. I care a lot about local elections and things like that because it affects like what kind of amenities my kids have at their school. That's really important to me in ways that never used to be before I was a parent or a homeowner or whatever. Uh, so those things matter to me, but I'm, I'm. I'm never, I don't want to say never, but I really just don't think about things in, in political terms. I don't think anyone who knows me has ever had a discussion about politics with me because I simply don't bring it up. That doesn't mean I'm not, I don't care about it. Um, but I don't look at the world through a lens that involves politics in any way. I certainly look at the world through a lens that involves science or Buddhism or Judaism or whatever, I definitely see it from that standpoint. But for me, politics is a side issue. I'm capable of putting on that hat and and looking at things in that way, but that's not a natural place for me to be. It's not a natural state for me to be. So yeah. when your co-hosts um, on the various shows mm. are expressing uh, like liberal, what, what you would describe as like... Um, Maybe, uh, I think he said unabashed or avowed. Yes. Yeah. But wh- when they're expressing opinions that are that are pretty directly liberal, and you 
and you listen uh, attentively or patiently, but don't chime in on it, um, what what's going through your mind? Are you just sort of what what's your take on? Well, let, let's say what's your take on the idea that most of your co-hosts share a political sensibility. I, Do you I agree with that. Yeah, Dan absolutely nailed it. Not talking about myself in third person, talking about the guy who wrote the email. Uh, Dan absolutely nailed it when he said uh, that I, it, I am absolutely surrounded by it. I don't feel that I'm surrounded by it, but I can't think of anybody that really that I do a show with or that I know really who isn't like really, really strongly liberal. Um, and that includes all of the co-hosts that I can think of that I have or have ever had. Um, and so for me, when someone talks about it, I mean, I'm fascinated by people. I love talking to people and I love listening to people. Otherwise I'd be a pretty crappy like podcast host. Wouldn't I, um, if I didn't enjoy that. Uh, but for me, you know, I'm, I'm open to pretty much anybody's reasonable opinion. And I definitely, you know, there's that expression, um, strong opinions loosely held. I think that's an, an interesting take. And I try, I try to look at the world in a way that is as open-minded as I can be. And I don't always do, I don't think I do always do a good job of that. But I try really hard to be open-minded. And so when I'm listening to somebody who's talking about something, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh my God, this guy is such an idiot. I can't believe he thinks that. Generally speaking, I come away from it like, wow, now I know more about how this person feels. If it's something I already felt, then perhaps it's bolstered my own opinion on it. If it was different from what I felt, I come away thinking, well, I've learned something more about this perspective that I didn't have before. But a lot of the time and more times often than not, I'm just, it's, it's not something that I've thought about deeply or considered deeply, or it's not something that I have a strong opinion on, you know? And, and I think, you know, when I have an opinion on something, because I don't, generally speaking, I don't hold back on it, you know? And, and I also do my best to, to be honest with myself about where and and about how how what i'm feeling fits into reality you know like for example um we've got no proof that i've seen of like uh i don't know ufos bigfoot but i'm fascinated about those things i absolutely believe that things like that could have happened or do happen but there's no proof right so I'm just like curious about it, but I don't talk about that a lot because a lot of people are ready to well, you believe in that, you must be crazy, you're stupid, I'm not gonna listen to any of your crap anymore. And and there's the same risk of that, I think, if um you know, if you if you were to go out and talk about it like on like if I if I did a show just about like conspiracy theory stuff, people would say, Well, Dan, you're a total conspiracy theorist, you're crazy, you're a crackpot. And I don't believe in all of that stuff, but I want, I want to understand. I want to understand our world. I want to understand everybody's perspective because I don't believe, I don't believe that I'm right. And I think, I think that's something that is foreign to a lot of people. If you were to ask people, do, do you think you're right? They would say, well, yeah, I'm right about that. I know I'm right about that. Well, why do you know you're right about that? Well, because it's what I think. 
Well, I, I constantly question what I think. I constantly question my own conclusions. I constantly question the whole world. I question uh, what you think and your conclusions too. Yeah. And you should. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a simulation anyway. Do but, you think it, that's true. Do you think that, uh, I mean, what's your feeling about uh, the people that listen to your shows that are not leftists? Because you know that there are, you know that there are people, and I think this is, I think part of what Dan is getting at is that there are people who enjoy this space. They enjoy the world of podcasting. They enjoy right. the, the, the banter and the sort of mental acuity of these people that are in your orbit, uh, the Syracuses and the Marcos and so forth. Um, they like a lot of the, they like the talk around technology. They like a lot of the talk, but right. when it gets political, they don't share that politics and yet they're able to listen anyway. Well, yes. Okay. But l- let me touch on something here because I think this is, this is interesting. Going back to my comment about people thinking that they're right mm-hmm. in order to talk about something, uh, the way that a lot of the podcasters that, that we're talking about do, you have to believe two things. Or three things, maybe. Um, the first is that is that you're right, and you know something. You know something, and you're willing to talk about that thing that you know. And the the second, the second is you need to think that your audience is on board and along with you. And the third thing is, if that's not the case, then you don't ha- you have to not care. And none of those three things are true for me. And in, in, on po- political issues, especially. And that is to say, um, like, for example, if I were to say dogs are horrible, nobody should own them. All dog owners are irresponsible and ignorant. Um, I might believe that, but I could have just insulted every single dog owner in the audience. And now what's going to happen? They're all going to say, oh, well, I don't listen to this guy anymore. Or, He's stupid. Because look, my dog's awesome. My not, not my dog's different. Well, I would never say something like that. Not just for those reasons, but because you know what? I have limited exposure to dogs, and all the dogs I've ever been exposed to have been incredibly annoying, and have had owners who have been uh, really ignorant. That's my experience, but it's not always that way. It's not every single person who has a dog, and not every single dog. Just all the ones that I've seen in forty-five years. But I'm aware of that, right? I'm aware that there could be exceptions. And I know that I can't say, I can't broadcast a statement like that and think that I know what I'm talking about. I don't. I only know my limited experience. So for a lot of people who will, who will talk about a political issue believing that they're right, I just don't think things are that absolute. And so for me, I'm, I'm always, I'm kind of, that's one part of my life where I'm, I'm very, very open-minded. I, 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 I react to each issue individually and there's no platform or party that exists that really does a good job uh, to combine all of those different beliefs and philosophies together under one roof for me to say, oh yeah, I'm all in here. So when I'm quiet, if I'm listening to somebody, it's because I'm really listening to them. It's because I'm considering what they're saying and I'm, I'm applying it to the things that I think about or the things that, that I believe in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't, I didn't like any of our candidates most recently. Uh, and I can't think of a time when I really did like any of them ever. Mm-hmm. And so that either makes me really smart or really stupid. But, you know, I voted in every single election that I could vote in, you know, um, and, and it's important to me and it means something to me, but I'm, I'm usually having to, to pick a candidate who embodies most of, or as many of the things as I can. So, you know, if, 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 if there's 10 issues that are important to me and one candidate has seven of them and the other has six, well, I'll vote for the one that has seven. I think that that's, that that's fairly common. Yeah. Um, but, um, it, but it, it, I've, I've never gone into, you know, my grandparents, Democrats, like it didn't matter who the candidate was Democrat. That was it. Like, that's it. And, um, you know, growing up without, um, you know, growing up without having a dad around for most of my life, my grandfather was kind of my main sort of father figure growing up. And he was, I think we've talked about him. Uh, he was super cool. He was a metallurgist. He, he uh, worked uh, with the government during uh, World War II doing uh, like armor for tanks and cool stuff like that. And, um, and his approach to the world was obviously a very scientific one. That doesn't mean he wasn't religious because he was, but it means that the way that he looked at the world, which I tried my, my very, very best to to learn and, and to try to emulate uh, because it gave him such a balanced perspective on the world. It gave him such a, a balanced way to look at the world. He didn't come into a situation with the, you know, we call it in Buddhism, beginner's mind. I don't think he necessarily knew about that, but that is to say you approach every situation uh, almost as if it's, it doesn't mean discarding your experience or your knowledge, but it means approaching each situation as if it's a novel situation, as if it's something new, going into it in as much of, as you can to say, this isn't something that, you know, I may have ideas, I may have beliefs, but let, let's hear, let's listen, let's learn, let's see, you know, what's going on. Um, you know, and I think, I think there's, there should be more of that. I try really hard to do that. I don't, I don't walk into a situation, especially a one of politics where with, with such a heavy restriction on what I'm open-minded to. And a lot of the things that, um, that other people are ready to, to say are, are bad things like, Oh, that's bad. People shouldn't believe that people shouldn't think that. That's an attitude that is so prevalent right now. You shouldn't think that. That's wrong. That's just wrong. How can you deny that that's wrong? Everyone knows that's not, that's not the way it is. Well, you're speaking so strongly from your own particular point of view that the, you, by going into any situation like that, you know, there, there are people with all kinds of crazy beliefs out there, but they're crazy to me. They're not crazy to them. You know, there are people who believe dogs make good pets. Well, I can't argue with that. It doesn't, doesn't work for me, but it works for them. So like, okay. Um, so I don't know, you know, like when I, when I listen to people like you, who, who you do have fairly, I think strong opinions about many of these issues, it's because I believe you've spent a great deal of time thinking about them. 
you've spent a great deal of time coming to these conclusions based on your own personal experiences, based upon what you've learned in your life. And I'm very fascinated to hear that. I love to listen to that. I love to hear what people think and why. And it absolutely does affect me. So when I'm quiet, that's usually why is because I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking. It doesn't necessarily imply dissent, uh, although it might. It doesn't necessarily imply agreement, although it might. Um, and it's very easy for me not to share what I think about those issues because generally, like I said, I, this is just one of those things I don't talk about. I don't even talk about it to my, my closest friends and family. Um, not because I'm afraid to say it, but because for me, it's, it's a, a very personal kind of thing. And because I know that it almost never, when I have talked about it, almost never have I been in full agreement with anyone ever on any, even one issue. And, um, and so, you know, I learned the hard way that you can get, people can get very upset when, you talk to them about something that they believe strongly if, if you don't agree with them. And it's not worth not having friends or losing friends over that kind of thing. It's interesting to me the idea that, <clears throat> that you would be a proxy in some of these situations for people that, um, that enjoy listening to the shows but don't share the political sphere mm. that your co-hosts all seem to occupy and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I imagine that the, that they're picking out some commonality, um, that maybe I wouldn't even identify as a commonality, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, there's liberal and then there's liberal. Right. Um, but, uh, but I, but I kind of like the idea that people were listening and, and your, your lack of like, you know, I, th- I think the expectation that a lot of people might have is that you would be there cheering it on and just waiting for your turn to say how true something was. And, right. You know, that kind of group think or, or, um, or pile on thing that happens in politics so much now where it's just like. Yes, I'm going to use the same tone of voice I would use to disagree with someone, but I am agreeing with you 100%. (laughs) Right, right. Wow, I'm glad we turned this into an argument somehow. Uh, And the fact that you're you're more uh, patient and a good audience also also might leave some space open for people listening who aren't who don't have that same conviction that aren't sitting there going yes and or yes but who are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about all that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably a positive. Um, it's a like a net positive to, to take that approach to listening to people who, who go on rants or who, um, who feel very strongly. You know, I definitely, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, I'm, I make a, a real distinction between people who, have really strong political beliefs, but haven't spent any time reading or living a life in politics. Right. People who just have really strong political beliefs because they have strong feelings or because, you know, because, um, they've restricted their media, um, consumption to 
such a degree that they only hear uh, they only hear voices and opinions from within a very narrow and self-reinforcing community of people. And so they have really strong political beliefs, I guess. But what it sounds like to me is that they're just sort of parroting um, a community of people. And it's not really coming from a, a place of a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to somebody like Max Temkin, who I know has spent a lifetime in politics, like right. I have. Grew right, up in right. a very political home. Thinks about things from, through a political lens. Has a has a broad uh like a, a very broad media base. He's not just reading things that, that agree with him and he can, he absolutely can hear, uh, the other side and appreciate it and take it into consideration and, and through that formulate his, his liberal opinion mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. but not from a knee jerk perspective, but from, from a perspective of somebody who's like, Huh. Yeah. Well, no, I see where you're coming from, but you know, and that, so somebody like that, they're, uh, if they go on a political jibe, I'm like, yeah, you know, settle in, uh, because this person's got something that they can teach me. And I feel that same way about people that I, that I disagree with profoundly. If they're not just shouting into the wind, if they say, here's why, you know, I'm not just referencing documents across a, a broad spectrum, but people who have come before us, uh, like economic rationale. Um, for instance, this this whole issue of developing downtown. Like, if you can't see the perspective of the developer in it, then you're just, I mean, then you're 100% a partisan, and to me, that means that you're a foot soldier. Right. And listening to foot soldiers talk about politics isn't interesting to me. It's like walking among the troops Mm. and hearing what they think about the strategy of the war. It's just like, yeah, man, you've got a lot of opinions and you're all shouting it as loud as you can. And you've got, you know, you're pounding your chests, but you guys are just doing, you know, you're just marching. Um, so if you're not, if you're not able to, look at politics strategically, if you're not thinking about it holistically, if you don't have a basis in history, if you not, if you don't understand or at least have read a little about economics, you can't just look at politics through the lens of sociology, for instance. You know, if you're a sociologist, that's wonderful. Like, practice sociology. But as soon as you're in politics, you have to, you have to know a lot more about stuff to be taken seriously, I think, or for me to care. I would love to say thank you on behalf of this program to Masterclass. Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz. Now you can with Masterclass. They offer online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you can only get at Masterclass. They've got Malcolm Gladwell teaching about writing. They've got Ron Howard teaching directing. Come on. You're going to find better people to teach than this? No, I don't think so. Astronaut Chris Hadfield on space exploration. There's so many more. I always mention the Dead Mouse one because it's so awesome. Dead Mouse teaching you what he does. 
and they're always adding new classes. It doesn't matter if you're pursuing your passion, developing a career, or you're just curious about something and you want to learn. You will find a masterclass for you. They've even been featured in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, ESPN. This is the real deal. And you can unlock access to every masterclass for a whole year right now at masterclass.com slash roadwork. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price where you get to watch everything. Masterclass.com slash roadwork. Unlimited access. Learn from the best in the world. Last time I'll say it, masterclass.com slash roadwork. One of the things that's made Twitter such a shithole is that everybody's a politics expert and they're all like definitely not politics experts. Right. Not at all. They're, they're parrots. They're, they are soldiers and they feel very strongly that they're soldiers, but they also think they're philosophers or that these ideas that they read about and are, you know, that they read someone else's tweet and are now shouting about that somehow they thought of them themselves or because that thing resonated with them. Right. They are, you know, like they're now the world's leading expert on it. And if you challenge them or ask an, even ask a question about it, um, their defensiveness is, I mean, and they're right to be defensive. They didn't, they don't know what they're saying. They may not be wrong, but they just don't know what they're saying. And so if you say, well, what about this? They're just like, no, you're either, you either agree with me or you're a Nazi. And you're just like, wow. Mm. Okie dokie. I mean, a kid wrote me on, on, uh, I'm sorry, wrote me on Twitter yesterday and said, I'm really mad at you that you mocked um, that uh, that candidate for Seattle's mayorality mm-hmm. who, um, who advocated for no police. And I said, well, are you saying there should be no police? And they're like, there absolutely should be no police. And you, I could just, I felt that this person was young, although you can't even tell anymore. And I said, what do you replace the police with? And they said, nothing. There's no good aspect to the police. They're just, it's, they're just abusive. It's a completely broken system, the entire idea of policing. Hmm. And so we need to eliminate not just police, but policing. And it's like, how do you, <laughs> uh, you know, like, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, what I said was... <laughs> There were 900,000 911 calls in Seattle last year. Seattle has a, like the entire city of Seattle has a population of 725,000 people. And of those 725,000 people, I mean, they, they produced 900,000 911 calls. That's a lot, isn't it? Well, no, Seattle's not calling 911 any more than anywhere else. Yeah. Um, but it seems that, like a lot. That's just the volume of 911 calls. And some of that is people calling 911 all the time or inappropriately. Right. (coughs) But in fact, every single day, thousands of people have need to call 911 or or, or think they have need to call 911. And a lot of them have need to call 911 for a hundred reasons other than just car prowling. I mean – the police do a lot of things. And so I just wrote this person back. I tried really hard not to do the thing I would have done two years ago or a year ago, which is to just reply and say, like, you're a child. I was like, I, I don't want to, sh- I don't want to like 
use that tone of voice with people anymore. Mm -hmm. So I just wrote back and said, like, where would you direct the 900,000 911 calls? Right, people, you, who, people who needed help or something. If you eliminated the police, would you just send all those calls to the fire department? Like, to say that we eliminate police and replace it with nothing is to say all 900,000 of those 911 calls, even if 200,000 of them are completely illegitimate, they're just crazy people calling uh, or, you know, people like those, that, that video the other day where they called the police on some whales or, you know, like just, just <laughs> crazy people. What? What? I don't know. I didn't turn the sound on, but there was some, <laughs> there was some situation, some people out on a boat and some whales came up and they were freaking oh, out. Oh, I saw that video. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't listen. They called to the police sound. about that. I think one of them was saying like, call the police. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> but even assuming like, even if you assume half of those 900,000 911 calls are, are illegitimate, which mm -hmm. I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. But even if you did that, you're just saying that, 450,000 different times that people needed help. You're going to, that's just part of the new reality. There's no one to call. Um, it's crazy, but it is, but that is a tenant. One of the tenants of the new left, I think the a radical wing of the new left, but it's not the first time I heard it. A woman ran for Seattle's mayor, the, the mayorality of Seattle. And that was something she said publicly. Now later, I think she, she corrected herself and said that she was speaking hyperbolically, but she was speaking to a base of voters in Seattle that agree that, they're, that they're, they should just eliminate the police. Now, maybe I'm some kind of dinosaur that doesn't understand that, <clears throat> that in the heart of all living humans, there is a soul of beauty that only wants to live free and if you eliminated the police, everyone would suddenly feel a, a, a sense of fraternity with one another. <laughs> of course they would. There would be no strife because the strife is happening only in reaction to mm -hmm. the police. It's mm -hmm. only the militarization, the violence culture that creates this violence. And without it, um, like the, the grass would grow up through the cracks in the pavement, flowers would bloom. The war would stop, and um, and it's as simple as that. You start at the top. You eliminate the army and the police, and you disallow capitalism. And from that, all other beauty uh, just blooms forth. Maybe I'm the crazy one that doesn't understand the basic truth of that. Um, but based on my reading, uh, that seems less likely than that we need someone to answer those 911 calls.